You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Okay, citizens of Foster Care Nation, we want to hear from you. We want to hear any stories that you'd like to share with us, anything that might be funny, inspiring, touching, heartfelt, all of those things. That's what people love to hear. So why don't you send us some of your stories? You can reach us at our voicemail line at 413-FOSTER-3. Again, that's 413-FOSTER-3. Now, we're going to assume that if there's any privacy rules that you need to follow, you've already followed them and changed any names that need to be changed because we will play some of this on the air. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, this voicemail has a limit of about, I think, 10 or 15 minutes. So anything longer than that, just contact me at jason at fostercarenation.com and we can sit down and talk about your whole story. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and on Parallel Training. Strength for the powerless, courage for the fearful, hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have a little baby girl here. She is like five weeks old. She's hanging out with us for a while. So you guys might get to hear her talk a little bit on here too. She does a pretty good job with saying more important and smarter things than I do most of the time. So if you hear some baby noises, well, sorry, she's more important than everybody else. So you're just going to hear that. Today, Amanda and I are bringing to you Sherry Walker. Yeah. Me and Sherry found each other online, and she has a story, man. And I was I was really interested in hearing it. And I know that you had some stuff show up with the, in your family with some health issues with a family member. And we had our, our recording initially pushed back a little bit, but I'm glad that we got a chance to get it put back together. And here we are today. So how are you doing today, Sherry? Yes, thank you so much. I'm doing great so far. Um, family member is healing, had surgery, um, but is back in good health. It was my mother-in-law. Uh, I'm glad everything's okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the mother-in-law. Hopefully your mother-in-law is one that you like because I always, I always tell people, hey, you know the difference between in-laws and outlaws? Outlaws are wanted. And you can tell what their out or what their in-laws are like when you say that because they either look at you and laugh and laugh, or they say, "I love my mother-in-law." <laughs> oh, goodness, I love my mother-in-law. She's That's amazing. good. That's she's good. She was okay. I was like, "Ooh, she's like my mom." Jason did not hit the lottery with his in-laws. That's for sure. Mine are a little crazy and out there. Well, we all got some crazy people in our family somewhere, I'm certain. So, but as a guy, we we definitely have a a, a well-known challenge with mother-in-laws sometimes and that's just i think it's the nature of the beast we're just supposed to deal with that but all that aside we can come here and talk about mother-in-laws today we came here to talk to you about your story how did you end up getting involved with the foster care system in the first place i think you had told me that you were you were a young teen girl when you first entered foster care yes yes absolutely so i entered foster care at 14 years old 
Um, I was in I was in high school at the time, and it was super difficult. I didn't know what was happening or what was going on. Um, I know that I entered foster care with a lot of anger um, due to, yeah, years of um, abuse happening. So I entered foster care not because uh, abuse just um, like wasn't happening all that time, but because no one said anything and I didn't say anything. And it was just what happens in the house stays in the house. And that was the mantra. So at 14 years old, um, my teacher was supportive and helped me. I entered the foster care system. And I stayed there from 14 until 18 years old when I emancipated out. It was before any of the AB12 bills here in California. Um, so at 18 years old, they just said, you're an adult now, figure it out and get out of foster care. Um, and because I did really well in school, school was my state was my state for a few reasons. It was my state because it was a safe place where no harm was being done to me. Teachers were really kind and encouraging. I learned that if I just did my work, sat in the front of the classroom, I got really great encouragement. Like, you're so smart. Um, you're going to do great things. Um, people even said, your parents must be so proud. And they absolutely were not. Um, one of my parents was not a big fan of education. She said, hey, you are darker skin tone. You need to just focus, do the bare minimum and get through. Um, she was not a big fan of uh, education. So 18 years old. I did really well in high school, even while in foster care, and I transitioned out, emancipated out, um, but I was not prepared for the world. I was not prepared at all. People thought that I was because I did well in high school, and um, and I didn't say anything. I would AWOL, run away, but other than that, doing well in school equated to success. Um, when I was not on that path at all, I had a lot of things happening on the inside that I just didn't say and that I didn't have anyone to talk to or work through with, so... Yeah, that was my foster care journey from 14 to 18 years old. Well, first off, I have to ask, <clears throat> because you mentioned the uh, in school, you had a lot of encouraging messages coming from the teachers. And I don't know if you're familiar with Josh Shipp. I've heard him speak a couple times. One of the things I've heard him say many times is every child is one caring adult away from a success story. That's not a direct quote. That's that's me trying to remember exactly what it was he said. That was the, the crux of what he had to say, though. Um, how, how did that uh, work out for you? I mean, did you have any specific teacher who really, really spoke into your life? Or, or, or how did that affect you and change your trajectory? Yes, absolutely. So it was several different teachers. There was one teacher who um, supported me in hearing my story and asking what was happening. And I shared with her. And she was a person who called. Um, and I was able to go into foster care, but there were several teachers who were super supportive. Um, I had I had my good days and I also had really hard days in school. So the hard days I had, I was um, not the best student. I would yell and go off, um, be really disruptive. But um, on the other days, I would really be paying attention depending on what was happening at home. It really did affect my mood. It affected education. Um, with my family, we grew up in food deserts, um, severe poverty. So the only time I was able to eat adequate lunches was at school. So a lot of times I would come to school super hungry, super agitated, just so much stuff going on. And then they want you to do math and they want you to do science and they want you to raise your hands and ask questions. So I wasn't always the perfect student, but the teacher saw that I really loved to write. Um, all of my teachers in different classes, whether it was science class or it was math, they just knew that I would do extra credit and I would write, I would write long essays. Like, what do you want me to write about? Let me get the extra credit. What do you want me to write about? Okay, I'm writing. And they saw that. So they're like, sure, you're really smart. You're a good writer. 
So let me try to help you. So they like told me about writing competitions while I was in high school. I won a Citibank bond for um, Black History Month. And they told me about um, different other opportunities. So I was able to travel to different high schools and share poems about my life and overcoming struggle, which was amazing. They told me like, Sherry, you have all this fire. You just need to learn how to direct it in the right way. And I was like, Mm. <laughs> but that was good because I was like oh okay oh poetry okay keep writing and then they told me about college and they were like hey you can go to college and at first I was like no I have other plans I need to make fast money and college won't be fast enough money that's the way my family was just trying to raise me up and you just need to make money whatever way you can which was not the best way at all but they said you can go to college and you can get grants and scholarships and all you have to do is write essays and read and I was like what? That sounds like the greatest hustle in the world. You just go, you what? Go to school and you read books and they pay you. People aren't paying me now. I'm going to college. Um, so I ended up applying with the support of teachers, um, filling out job um not job applications, job applications too, but filling out college applications and writing those college essays um, and getting edits from them and feedback. And I was able to get in over 10 universities, which was really amazing. But, but if it wasn't for my teachers, I wouldn't have had that opportunity because they were really encouraging. When they saw something that I wasn't very strong at, which was a lot of times relationships, it was hard for me, <laughs> depending on the day, you would get a different sherry. Um, they just saw, hey, you can hone that and you can put it towards writing. You can put it towards spoken word poetry. You can put it towards education and learning. Um, and you're smart enough to do that. So this is an opportunity that you can do. And if they hadn't shared that, I would have been doing something completely different that may not have been the best. Well, I hope that every teacher, school counselor, uh, anybody involved in the education system listening today hears that and knows the power they have. Because it sounds like they, those are the people who, who aimed you in the right direction, got that fire aimed in the right direction. Because, I mean, you talk about having some anger issues at 14. I'm going to tell you, 14-year-olds tend to have anger issues anyways. And a 14-year-old who's spent 14 years of their life dealing with some sort of abuse or another, they have a whole different level. So it sounds like you probably had some real fire that just needed an outlet and somebody to tell you how to direct it. Absolutely. I think that school administrators, school staff, principals, counselors, they should always keep that in mind when when working with youth of all ages, foster care, in foster care, out of foster care, um, is to be mindful of the background and what's happening at home. For example, my sister, she was also um, subjected to the abuse that I was and she was older. So she put herself in the forefront of, I'm gonna try to protect my sister as best that I can. And she's five years older than me. So she couldn't do more than I could do really, but she would try her best. And she never entered the foster care system though she should have, she never entered it. So there's just things that happen at home. And she went to the same school as me and teachers just didn't, I don't know. I know that teachers have a lot of work to do. And a lot of times, if you're a good enough student, they don't really pay attention. If you are kind of a student who has what they say is behavior problems, it's a lot of times easier just to send you to the principal's office or to write you up or to expel you or suspend you. But those conversations were pivotal, pivotal to me being able to say, hey, this is what's happening. Yeah, I really do like writing. What do you think? And me being able to trust the teacher and take their feedback. But I think because they built that rapport over time and being able to say, sure, you're smart. And while you did really great on this essay and here's some additional opportunities that you can do, I was more apt to listen when the fire would come out and I'd be like, 
okay, let me, let me try. Oh, I can redirect it. What do you mean? Like I was more apt to listen because they built that rapport. Um, and they didn't speak negatively of me. Even when I had those outbursts, they were just, they asked more questions of Sherry. Hey, what's going on? Are you having a hard day today? Do you want to step out of the classroom? What do you need? They were more supportive. So I think if school administrators can take that heart of asking more questions of giving students that space of, Hey, do you need to take a walk or, Hey, we can talk after or before class that would be really supportive in building rapport to be able to see what may be seen as challenges and seeing how that can be opportunities for growth or opportunities for art, opportunities for them to get involved in extracurricular activities that can really be an outlet like writing was for me. Well, absolutely. Because too often, even in the school setting, our kids fall through the cracks and they just get labeled as a bad kid. And that's not, that's not what it is. It's kids being in a bad situation and needing some guidance you know, so I'm I'm so thankful that you had teachers that recognized that and sounds like they really supported you and really tried to help guide you. And not all of our kids get that. Absolutely. Absolutely. They do not get that. I had several friends who didn't have that same opportunity who got expelled and kicked out of schools and moved. And then on top of moving, having to move from foster home to foster home, which was super, super difficult. I think always take it to account what the background is always being kind and gentle. You don't know what happened. Like a lot of times I was coming to school, coming from severe abuse, not having eaten over the weekend, coming in on a Monday and being required to do all this work and pay attention. It's a lot um, for anyone to deal with. And especially when you don't have anyone to talk to. So I don't believe that any child is bad. I just believe that as adults, we need to ask more questions about what's happening and finding outlets so that they can work through some of those things um, and finding the right healthy adult. I think that's the good thing, having a good community of healthy adults to be able to help. So I know sometimes it can be stressful. Like I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't always nice and kind and upbeat, Sherry. I had a hard time, but I don't know how, but my teachers had formed like a little village. So when they were getting, having a hard time with me, they can send me to somebody else's classroom or send me to my counselor's classroom. She really liked me to, um, just like, and Sherry sit with you for this, for this period or for this class or for the day. Um, she's having a hard time. So building that community at school of teachers, that's not just doing it by themselves, but who can partner with the counselors and the therapists and other teachers to say, Hey, let's, let's do wraparound. So that um, when one of us gets a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit tired, um, the student still has that support. The, fo for, the foster youth still has that community to be able to say, hey, I can still see the good in you. And here's what we can do for today. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. So you're talking about these teachers spending all this time really helping you work your way through some hard stuff. I, I assume you went to a, a really high end, you know, uh, private school or something, right? No, I did not. It was a public school. It was Norbon High. It was not, it was not high caliber at all. Um, but the good thing is, is that I, I was fortunate to be able to stay at my same high school. And a lot of 
foster you don't get the opportunity. When you move foster homes, you usually move schools. Um, I was really fortunate that I advocated for myself with my social worker. I was like, I do not want to leave this high school that I'm in because if I leave, I'm not going to do good. I have these teachers who really support me. And if I go to a new school, they don't know me. They have no background and I'm do good in school, but it's only because people like can help me like navigate. Teachers are encouraging. If I don't have that, I'm not going to do well. And at the time I was living in Inglewood and Norbon High is in Harbor City. So I had to pass about three beaches to get there. So I had to catch the bus. I used to leave like at 4.45, go stand at the bus stop around 5 a.m. I would not get to school around like barely eight. I probably get there like at 7.45 because I had to catch so many buses and it took so long to get to school. Um, and then I'd have to like walk this like long distance and like get there. But um, I say this to say is that that was really important because it wasn't the private school and all those other things. Maybe if I had a private school, I don't know if they would have been supportive, but it was a regular public school and just great teachers who were like, you like, you really like to write. You're really smart. I'm going to support and help you. Um, but I said to say that a lot of times I was just quiet and I would just do my work and I was seen as like the, the smart, short black girl. That's what I was known as in school. And even with teachers, they're just like, oh, this smart, short girl. She likes to write. She does good poems. But again, I would encourage um, educators to just be mindful because everybody doesn't have the personality that I had in high school where I had good days and I had bad days. Some days, sometimes with foster you fit, it may not be any good days at all. So finding the good in the foster youth is so important, regardless of the outside behavior, regardless of if they talk and laugh, regardless of if they're writers or they're singers or whatever it is, just being able to find that good um, and working with the strengths that they have. Always look at the strengths because that you build off of that and then you can really um, make something great like the teachers did with me. They saw I was a good writer. I wasn't good at math. I wasn't good at science. I wasn't good at dance. I was not good at PE. I could not stand running, but I love to write. And they focused on that. I was like, okay, how can we help her thrive in this area? How can we encourage her in this area? And how can we find opportunities for her? So finding what they're good at, what they may like, um, and really helping that to blossom and using that as a, that became an outlet and a coping mechanism for me to help me like navigate some of the things that were happening. Wow. Wow. Well, just so you know, this is a podcast. You could have just told them all you're actually like six foot tall and they wouldn't even know. (laughs) (laughs) You get to be six foot tall today if you want. You you mentioned something earlier about about being told by your family that, you know, your job was, you know, you've got a a darker complexion and your job was just to do the little things you had to do to get through. Uh, You know, unfortunately, there's so much of that mentality out there that says you can't go to college you can't do this that's not for you you know we we're not allowed to do that and you know the racial makeup in in our family is well it looks like somebody was really confused as as you look down the the whole list of our family members because none of us match but that's okay but i've seen you know because we we're in so many different communities and we have a fairly diverse community around us we're in a small small town but we have a pretty diverse community around here. And I see a lot of people, though, that, that believe that, really truly believe that because of where you come from, because of what your name is, what you look like, that changes your ability to, to move forward and become somebody in your life that does something other than just hustle for money. What told you that that was different? And, and how has that changed how you approach life today? 
That's a good question. Well, it took me time to like overcome the thinking patterns that have been ingrained in me of you are not smart enough for college. College isn't for you. Um, like I said, the reason why I first went to college, I didn't think I was smart enough for it. I was just like, oh, they'll pay me to go to school. Well, I'm going to go. That's a great hustle. I'm, I'm going. The former Fossey's I had not seen more than $10 in my pocket. So I was like, what? They'll give me like $6,000 to go to class and for living expenses? I'm going. Um, but again, just going for the money for school, that did not sustain me because when I got into those classrooms, I felt a lot of imposter syndrome. I felt outside of the box of, oh my gosh, I do not fit in here. These kids are smart. I remember walking, the first class I had, I don't know why, I had an astronomy class. I was like, it's like sitting in the classroom, looking around and people are taking notes. And I'm like, I've never heard of nothing astronomy. I don't know if it's because I went to a public school, but we didn't go over astronomy stuff. I was like, what in this world? And no one helped me like get the classes for college. So what in the world am I doing here? So my first college it did not go well. Um, I was at Cal State Long Beach University and I ended up getting kicked out because my grades dropped within a year and a half. And I was thinking, maybe my family is right. Maybe it's not for me. Um, I ended up going to a transitional housing program. It's closed now, but it was the YWCF Santa Monica across the street from Santa Monica College. And that was like life-changing for me. Um, and it was life-changing because it was a college program. They gave me the opportunity. I was like, my grades are terrible. Um, I think I had like ooh, close to like a 0.00 GPA. If that was, if that could be a thing, because <laughs> I kept taking classes even after I got after I got kicked out and not doing well. Mm-mm-mm. But um, it really helped me because the school was it was uh, right across the street from the transitional housing program, um, and then they ended up connecting me to someone amazing. Um, who said that she just wants to volunteer and help me in school. So she was the person who was like, hey, okay. I remember sitting down with her for the first time and she was like, where are your syllabus? Do you have them? And I was like, Scylla what? And she was like, syllabus? It's, it's the thing they gave you at the first day of class. And I was like, oh, these papers. And I remember I didn't have a backpack. I just had like a big folder of a whole bunch of papers. So I was like, this is all the things I had. Because um, I was starting fresh at Santa Monica Community College. And she was like, okay, you need to hole punch, put it in an order. And she really walked me through like, hey, this syllabus says all the times the things are due. So you should look at it so you can put it in your calendar. Um, and I was like, oh, and I was like, um what else and she said well you don't understand something go to your teacher's office hours and I was like office hours what is that so I had no understanding of what those things was um but somebody just sharing that with me like hey here are the resources available to you what I learned from that experience was hey I am smart enough it's just that I didn't have the opportunities the same as other people may have had to understand have somebody walk them through the basics of what college is all about I didn't have those opportunities I was going in like High school, grew up in Watts, California, the projects. There's no first person, in my co- first person in my family to go to college. I don't have any reference to any of these things happening, but it doesn't mean I'm not smart enough. It didn't mean I wasn't good enough. It didn't mean people from my community who grew up in Watts, California projects that they aren't capable enough. It's just, hey, I didn't have the opportunity to get that type of information. But when I got it, I could utilize that and work super hard to put it into practice. And that's when school started to change. So when youth are told anyone is told hey you're not smart enough people like you can't go to college people like you aren't smart enough for school you are smart enough for school I cried my way through college every college I cried my way through Cal State Long Beach Santa Monica College CSUN and 
especially USC, because they're a research school and I don't like research, <laughs> but I did it and I was capable. I may have to study 10 times as hard, but it was possible. And I know it's possible for any former foster youth, current foster youth who wants to go to college. You are capable and you can. It may take extra work. It may take extra time, but you can complete your degree. Even while I was at Santa Monica College, members of my family were saying, college isn't for you. You need to just make fast money and um, get a job. You just make the money, Sherry. You're pretty. You know how to talk. Just get money. Absolutely not. If you want to go to college, if you want to um, community, university, whatever college you want to go to, you can. It's just going and asking for that additional help, taking the help that arises and um, pushing through because you're capable. Um, and I learned that because again, I'm not good at any subject. <laughs> when you're going through college, they make you go through all these GE requirements of like science and math and geography and anthropology and all this stuff I'm not good at, but I was able to get through by studying super, super hard, crying my way through it, but it was all possible and everyone is smart and capable to do it. Well, and I, I also think that, you know, being in the area that you are in and being in foster care, there's so many things that are already stacked against you and bringing you down and pulling you down. And that makes it even harder. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I agree. Things that was bringing me down in college was family members asking for money. So that financial aid college money, yes, they wanted some of it. They, they, I don't know. They didn't, they didn't tell me anything about college, but somehow they knew that I would get grants and scholarships. And then they wanted part of the paycheck. So like figuring out how to set healthy boundaries of I'm not giving you my whole financial aid check because I have to use this for living expenses and books. And if I give you my whole check, I won't be able to buy books and I'll fill my classes and then no one will have money. So being able to focus that, being able to have imposter syndrome, I felt that heavy at every university. When I graduated from SMC, CSUN, even USC, feeling like, man, I don't fit in. I feel like everybody in this classroom, everybody in the school have me beat. Um, what is somebody like me from Mont California going to do? Am I going to be judged um, for the things that I don't know um, in the areas that I come from? That was something. Uh, being able to work through family issues, still like dealing with homelessness at different stages of being in college because financial aid wasn't always enough. And I was working three jobs and that still wasn't enough. And I didn't have family to fall back on. So going into homelessness and trying to figure out how to navigate that because I didn't have parents to call to support me when I failed. I think that that was a major thing too. So there's so many barriers in college that come up. Um, being able to connect to good organizations though is super, super important. That was helpful. And being able to say, hey, I need help. I think asking for help in college is super important and finding the right people to um, to navigate, whether that's getting therapy, I got that in college, whether that's getting housing resources and being able to ask like, who can support me and where can I go for that support? And then being able to just ask for the basics of if you need food or you need tutoring, or you just need a mentor to just say, I'm on your team and I'm rooting for you. I think that that's really lacking in college too. I know a lot of times I'd, I get A's on my papers and I get certificates and there was nobody to say, good job, Sherry. I think that that was the deep contrast of being in high school and college. There was nobody saying, rah, rah. When I walked in the classroom, there was 50 other students and the professor did not know me. And if I didn't go to office hours, they would have never known me. It was completely different than high school. I was like, Nobody, I'm not special here. I'm just in the bunch of everybody else. And that could be hard. So being able to like, hey, 
I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to meet you, professor. And if things go wrong, like when I was struggling with homelessness, sending my professor an email, I don't have anywhere to stay. I have all my stuff. I can't come to class today. I'm not coming in this week. If you can work with me, even just asking the questions and hoping that you have a good professor sometimes can be of a, of a good resource. Well, you mentioned it um, at least once or twice. You know, mentioned that you had some therapy through that process as well. Because as I'm looking at this thing, and an angry young 14-year-old girl comes into care, fights her way through it, and then goes to college facing all of the things that makes college hard for kids anyways, let alone a kid with some trauma background. What did that mental health journey look like for you? Oh, it was a it was quite a journey. Um, initially, I did not want to do therapy. I had therapy while I was in foster care, and I did not like my therapist. And I think actually liking a therapist is really important. So I would sit in those therapy sessions and just sit there and not say anything. Like I don't want to be here, and I don't like you, and I do not like therapy. On top of all of the um, all of the mantras of therapy, just with my family of like, you don't go to therapy. You're not crazy. You need to just you know, figure it out on your own. You, you're okay. You're fine. Um, what, what finally led me to go to therapy was at one of the transitional housing programs I was a part of. I remember I was letting so many people stay at my house. I had no sense of boundaries. And I remember telling her everything that was going on. And she was like, Sherry, you really need to set boundaries. And I was like, what's a boundary? Like, I did not know what a boundary was. I wasn't raised in a family that had boundaries that set boundaries. There were no boundaries. People crossed them all the time at every level. So knowing what healthy boundaries was, it was foreign to me. And I was getting into all of these unhealthy relationships um, continuously just from watching my mom and her relationships and family members in these um, domestic violence, unhealthy relationships. And I found myself in those same patterns, no matter how great I did in school, no matter how many people like me, just dealing with relationships was hard for me um she was like you might try therapy I was like mm, mm -mm. <laughs> and then I ended up going to church and there was a um a it was the pastor's wife and she was like hey Sherry I'm going to therapy um you can go to therapy too you are not crazy it was really helpful to me and at the time I was like oh, the pastor like you're going to therapy I can't believe this someone like you she was like yeah you should try it so I ended up signing up for therapy and I was fortunate to find an amazing therapist um, who was really, really helpful to me um, to being able to help me with navigating these unhealthy relationships, navigating some unhealthy coping mechanisms that I had. Um, I think what was great about her was she was a little bit unconventional because <laughs> she was like really cool. She was like, I'm not supposed to, as a therapist, I'm not supposed to tell you what to do, but you need to not be dating him. You should not date him and you need to go to class. What, Sherry? It's two o'clock, you set this meeting, then you say you have class on these days. Why aren't you in class? You should go to class. Like she was like a little bit unconventional, but she was helpful because I could tell her what was going on. I had built a relationship with her and a rapport and I felt open to hearing her feedback. So again, the rapport and the relationship. So just having somebody who was a sounding board who was able to say like, hey, that is unhealthy. Um, that's not that's not great to go towards. Here's some here's some alternatives that you can do. Um, here's some different mechanisms you can do. I think what was really powerful was I was sharing with her about my um, about one of my parents, and she was like, "We're we're gonna try group therapy." And I was like, "I don't think group therapy will work very good. Not not with this parent." She's like, "Let's try it. I'm great. We're gonna do it." And we did group therapy, and I remember it was a really really hard session. Um, never had group family therapy in my life. 
we did the group uh, session. I was like, oh, it was so hard. But she was really good at structuring it um, and talking to my parent and letting them know like, hey, you have to take responsibility. These are your children. Um, these are not your parents. She was really great at being able to structure things. I remember afterwards, she was like, Sherry, you were right to be able to like set the boundaries and keep that distance just in seeing um, yeah, where your parents currently are. So you continue to work on your journey, you continue to work on your path and it's okay to set those boundaries for your own mental health. And that was life-changing to me because I was like, oh, even with family, um, if it's unhealthy, it's okay to set boundaries of time, of communication, of, of how much money I give or I don't give. And I think that that was like the road to me being able to successfully focus on self-care, successfully focus on boundaries, um, which helped me to thrive in other areas because I didn't have like these... Uh, unhealthy relationships holding me back and I wasn't holding myself back by um dealing with the unhealthy coping mechanism wow yeah boundaries is one of those things that I, I don't know how many people I've met who really need to go and I'll just say there's a book out there just called boundaries um mm-hmm. there's a uh, cloud and townsend yeah is, is are the authors go find that if 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 somebody if you're listening into this and you do not have good boundaries don't understand what it is or what it looks like for you go buy that book get it on audible something it's it's it was a life changer for a handful of people in my life i've given the book out for to people to borrow and i have bought about four or five copies of it over the years and nobody ever returns it <laughs> So I buy me a new copy and I don't have a copy anymore. So yeah, that, that, that's, that's a good one. So anybody who doesn't understand healthy boundaries, that's one of the things that I think is wildly important. So I, I'm curious. So when you did the group therapy, how did you get your family to be willing to come in to a therapy session when they told you you don't need it in the first place? Oh, that's a great question. Well, at the time, one of my parents, I hadn't talked to them in quite a long time. Um, and my sister, she came to the group therapy session too. She didn't believe in therapy, but she was like, we need help. So, okay, we're going to go. I was like, I don't know. This is an amazing lady. She steps outside the box. Can you convince our parent? Um, and my sister is really good at convincing my parents. So she was like, yeah, come. We're going to sit down. We're just going to have a conversation. You haven't seen Sherry in a while. Can you come? And then the parent ended up showing up. I was surprised. I think my therapist was surprised. My sister was surprised. We were all surprised that my parent actually showed up. Um so that was that was interesting. So I think asking, even if um, even if the the family doesn't is like, no, you don't need that. Still asking because you never know what they may be open to. And I think even now, like it took. So that was like a, quite a few years ago when my sister was like against therapy. You don't need it. And now she's currently going to therapy. But it's been about like twelve years later, and she's going to therapy. And she's like, I really need it to go to therapy and to be able to get that support and that help. So although she went to that one therapy session, she never went back <laughs> for the next 12 years. And now currently she's in therapy and she see how she sees how helpful it is. But, um, but again, it takes time and it takes time to transform your mind and, um, and be open to try something new. So I, I can understand that it can be hard sometimes, but it was really helpful to me um, and really pivotal in helping me to help with those internal things that no one can see that only I knew I was working through. Well, that's amazing that you were able to, to find that sort of uh, opportunity to, to make that connection. I'm curious. Um, now that that's your, your biological family that you're speaking about, correct? 
Yes. What What about your foster family? Were the, was there any support that came from that, or was that a, a more problematic place as well? Because we have heard both stories. We've heard about amazing foster parents that have done great things that people still have amazing relationships with, that they treat their kids like, you know, their foster kids as they grew into adults. They treat their children like grandchildren. It's an amazing relationship. And we've heard some pretty horrific, like, peel your toenails back kind of stories that you go, holy crap, that happened in a foster home. That's that's terrifying. So what was that like for you? And do you still have a connection with them? Oh, great question. So I do not have a connection with them. And that was really, really hard. That's why even in foster care, school was still my escape. Um, school was a lifesaver for me that I focused on. When, when I was in foster care, yeah, foster parents were not supportive. Um, it was really cut off. Um, it was locks on the refrigerators. A lot of times it was frozen moldy meals. Um, so trying to figure out where I was going to get food was still an issue. Even in foster care, it was difficult to transition and figuring out. Um, the roommate that I had in foster care, she would steal all of my things. And I'd tell it to the foster parent. And then the only reply would be her mom steals. So she steals. What do you want me to do? She's going to steal because that's just who she was raised by. So no support there. Um, the foster parent did not care about me doing good in school, not doing good in school. Um, yeah, didn't care at all. It was it it appeared to be just for a paycheck. Just Sherry, come in, come out. There's your room. You go sleep in it. There's some meals over here if they're available. And then that was kind of it with with me. So school continued to be my saving grace. And it was no abuse being done, but it was. I always say that foster care was the safest prison I've ever known because it was it was just day in and day out a current routine of me going to school me checking out and I tried to stay out of the house as much as possible because my roommate would throw all my stuff and um and yeah it was really not a great situation that sounds pretty horrible I mean the safest prison you've ever lived in um doesn't sound like like what the foster care is supposed to be for children no, absolutely not. And unfortunately, I hear too many stories that end up sounding like that. Like they believe somebody's in the, in this just for the money. And it always makes me crazy because here in the great state of Missouri where we live, foster care payments are, um, let's just say that it's considered a reimbursement for the money you've spent taking care of kids over the, the previous month. And if you're doing it right, you're going to be at a net loss pretty much every month. It's, a, it's mm -hmm. just, it's what it takes to raise kids properly. And I know you can do it cheaper. You can do it cheaper by, by doing just exactly what you're talking about. But I don't want to have frozen moldy meals in my house. I like mm -hmm. to eat. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's just how, that's just how we roll. But, but I, I see those stories and it, it always breaks my heart to know that, that in that home, how many other children suffered the same way? Mm -hmm. Because that's what was allowed to go on. And I don't want to talk bad about caseworkers because the, you know, I don't know what the caseworkers in that situation were like or what they knew. And, um, so it may have been something they were totally unaware of, or maybe just something that they, you know, they chose to close their eyes and, and look the other way for. And it's, it's terrifying and it's sad. And it's part of the reason why Amanda and I have had such a push to try and figure out how to get more good, high quality and people with integrity and honor who are willing to go and step into those hard places and help kids who come from the hard places in the way that they should be taken care of. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You and your wife are doing an amazing job. I wish it was different. I know sometimes uh, foster parents are like, we don't make enough money for people to say it's just for a paycheck. But if you do the bare minimum, which is just let the child in your house into the room and out each day, you can keep whatever additional payments you get, which is uh, very unfortunate. And it was very sad and it was very hard for my for my caseworker, social worker. She did not come visit me. She was like, Sherry's a good kid. I don't have to worry about her. So she never came and visited me. And I would get a bus pass each month and she'd have someone who I didn't even know just drop it off to me and hand me the bus pass. So I wasn't seeing her at all. And she wasn't coming to check out the home. The first time I saw her was when she dropped me off. And the next time I'd see her is when she would have to move me homes. And that was about it. But she was not coming to visit me on a consistent basis. She wasn't checking if the house was okay. She wasn't doing any of those things. And that's very unfortunate because everybody does not have the best motive. Everybody does not have the best heart. Um, so good people being able to get into the foster care system and become resource parents um, and really love the children, help guide them, be advocates for them. That's so needed, um, especially now. And even back when I was in foster care, that is needed. People who genuinely care. And yes, I'm now I'm a parent. I'm like, it absolutely takes a lot of money when you care about your children and you got to pay for all this stuff. I said, Woo, parenthood is a whole nother level. I'm still learning myself how to navigate <laughs> it. It's expensive, but <laughs> it's so worth it. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to like see as a parent, like, hey, I want to be able to support you and get resources and community and love and patience and teach her all the things that I didn't necessarily know growing up of, hey, it's okay when you make a mistake and hear things like I love you and give hugs um, and not just, this is your room, you stay in it and be quiet. That's not the healthiest relationship. Um, so I know there's great people out there and sometimes people wonder like, should they enter the foster care system? I would say enter wherever you're comfortable with um, of supporting. So whether you can be a resource parent, whether you can volunteer um, and be a mentor for the day, um, whether you can work with a nonprofit and help with school and academics over a school year, there's so many different levels of ways that people can get involved and help children who are in foster care and former foster youth. Yeah, it sounds to me like the uh, <clears throat> having that home right across from the college where you were able to find some great mentorship was a place that was exactly what you're talking about, a place for somebody who maybe isn't ready to take in a newborn baby. You know, I, I just say that one because that's what I have today. We have a newborn baby in our house staying with us. And some people look at that and go, man, that's crazy. I couldn't do that. That's fine. We don't want you to do that if you can't do that. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you need somebody to mentor teen kids, um, I, I know there's great mentors out there. That's not my strong suit. I know that. So the place that I step into is a place where I'm strong. And you can find, anybody can find a strong place, uh, their own strength to, to share with kids in need out there. Because I said it before, I'll say it again. You're going to help these kids out now, or you're going to deal with them later. That's, that's the, just the mm. truth of it. Because if, you, if these kids aren't successful, the story of aging out of foster care without a support system in place is very, very dire. They're most likely going to end up in the criminal system. They're going to end up somewhere, whether the juvenile, if they do it quick and early, or the adult ju or justice system, because they haven't been supported in a way that helps them know how to do what needs to be done for a successful mm -hmm. life. And it sounds like you were right there. You, you, were, you struggled with homelessness. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you were struggling through college and you had some people step in at the right moment. And that's what we need is people to step into that moment for kids who are aging out of care because, man, that's a tough time. I can't even imagine that. I, I sit back sometimes and try and put my head in that place, and I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I had a hard time transitioning from a fairly healthy family relationship off out onto my own, you know? The, the only thing it did it for me was, well, Uncle Sam kicked me in the back end a few times, and and uh, <laughs> he, he taught me how to be a grown-up the hard way, but not everybody gets that. And mm. you, you found that, and that's what one of the places we need people to step into is into that place where, where they're helping people to avoid things like that homelessness. Now, what, what did that, how, how did you figure out how to walk through living in that homeless situation, going to school, and eventually make that all work? Like, you succeeded out of that. That never happens. How did you do that? Oh, it was it was hard. I, I feel like it was by the grace of the Lord um, that kept me at school. Um, so what I would do is I was at a car at the time. I was finding a way to always have a little bit of money to buy a bucket lemon car that even if it could barely run, always have a car because that could be a safe place. So I was sleeping in my car outside of Cal State Long Beach University. Um, oh, and it gets cold. <laughs> it's cold over there. But I had blankets and I'd sleep in my car and then I'd wake up in the morning and go to class. Um, I'd find places to charge my phone. I knew that the gym offered showers. So that's what I would do. I started applying for transitional housing programs um, and asking like, hey, where can I go to apply? It's a little bit different now here in California. Um, you have to fill out a assessment and then they have to direct you to housing. But at the time when I was in foster care, you just have to connect to the organization and fill out an application. So I filled out tons of applications to try to transition. Um, and then eventually one of the uh, one of the nonprofits accepted me into their transitional housing program. And then I moved in. And then from there, I went to the YWCA of Santa Monica, which is really, really important. And then I graduated from SMC at the top of my class. And when I went to Cal State Northridge University, I was like, I do not want to be homeless again. So I just made it my priority to work three jobs while I was in school, um, in addition to apply for as many scholarships as possible um, while staying in school so that I would be able to pay for everything and pay for housing. I was able to afford an apartment um, long-term for the first time um, at CSUN after graduating from SMC, which was really cool. But for the majority of that time at Cal State uh, Long Beach University, I was in a, I was living out of a car and um, going, waking up in the morning, Going to class, he went back to my car, parked right across the street from the school. Um, yeah, and that's how I navigated it. Wow. Wow, what a, what a tough story, but but you did it. I, I got to ask this question because, you know, we're sitting here. We, we've got the video turned on. I can see you. The listeners can't. But they don't need to be able to see you to hear the smile in your voice. And you came into foster care as an angry 14-year-old girl. And the girl I see in front of me today is not an angry 14-year-old girl. It's a woman who has her own child, who has a life, who's reaching out and helping people with a mission, with a big smile through the whole thing. Tell me, how did you figure out how to keep that smile in those hard times? Oh, great question. So early on, um, I learned to, I was a comedian in my family, whether that was the good or bad, I tried to find the good in things um, and laugh at the days to come. It became really hard. Um, I had really hard days. I think the pivotal moment that really changed me so that I wouldn't have like these great high highs, haha, and have these like long low lows is um, being able to. I really did find 
the Lord Jesus, I studied the Bible and it really did change my life. It really did. Um, I was looking for something. I didn't know what I was doing. I had so much um, just baggage and things that I just could not work through. Even with therapy, it was hard to just get through to me because I did not want to, it was hard for me to trust anyone. Like, why would I trust your advice when you weren't there those 14 years? And how do you know better than me? I just want to do my own thing. I was like, very like, nah, I don't want to hear you. I'm only going to come talk to you if I need something. You give me what I need. And then you won't see me for the next 10 months. Um, that's just my personality. But being able to really study the Bible, it was it was life-changing. I was like, oh, I was able to listen. I don't know what it was. It opened up my eyes. It opened up my ears. And then I was able to like, okay, I need to get help and I need to seek out the right people. So my faith built and I was just like, I'm just going to start asking for help and just see what happens. <laughs> no, I'm just going to start doing it and I'm not going to do none of the bad stuff my family is telling me to do. I'm just going to try to do the right thing and stick it out. And then I met really great people. And then I, from foster care, I really learned to be grateful when people would help you because we have a, when people don't like your attitude and people you aren't blood related to them sometimes even when you are but when you aren't blood related to to them and you don't have the best attitude people are not inclined to help you I learned that early in foster care people just cut you off cut 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 and I was like I'm just going to be grateful for however long someone can help me I'm going to be grateful um so I don't know I'm just going to be grateful for the day that I have today um so now that's how I'm able to to navigate and have so much joy is really learning more about Jesus and reading his word and seeing the gratitude and even in all the stuff that happened, um, being able to see now I'm able to help and now I'm able to advocate. Um, most of my work has been in social welfare and child welfare and being able to advocate and say, Hey, these are the things that I needed when I emancipated out of foster care. Here are the things that you should look for when foster youth are in foster care. Here are the things you should ask those foster parents. Here are some policies that can be changed to make it easier for foster parents and for foster youth and for former foster youth. Here are some things that you can do to help. Um, so really being able to, um, to help and to serve, it really does give me joy to be able to give back so that people don't have to go through the same things that I had to go through. I don't want that for, for anyone. Um, and to be able to see the hope um, that there are great people out there. I found quite a great community of people. I know everybody doesn't have that, but I believe there are great people who are listening to this episode, who are walking around outside, but they, they just need to know, hey, there's a need um, and then see what they're capable of doing at any level. Is that a resource parent? Is that them being able to be a mentor for career, a mentor for school? Um, uh, I don't know, a mentor for the day to help them go shopping. There's an emporium here in California where someone can volunteer to take foster youth shopping at this shop that they put together, especially for former and current foster youth. You could just be a personal shopper and give foster youth all this free stuff and help them to find things that they really like, which is amazing. So I think, yeah, just finding that joy and that hope that it is going to be okay. And maybe not everybody is great, but there are great people who can help um, and being grateful for that. I'm just, yeah, really grateful that, I don't know, by the grace of God, he had the right people. <laughs> I was able to sleep in my car um, and get through school, even though I got kicked out of one of them, um, but to navigate um, and to really, um, yeah, see such amazing former foster youth striving for education and um, housing, striving to find their way in the world. I think that, um, yeah, that really does inspire me. And that gives me joy and hope that, yeah, if we all work together, we all work as a community, there's, there's hope for the future. 
you know, Amanda and I came from two totally different backgrounds. Um, <clears throat> Amanda had a mostly unchurched childhood, and I would say uh, mine was probably overly churched. If and, and we'll just put it, leave it at that. Not in a, not in a healthy way um, for me, anyways. Mm-hmm. And, and so we've had that's a that's a, a journey we've had to walk together, and we still both have totally different views and, and thoughts and experiences that that we're, we work through even to today. But, you know, I was <clears throat> I was looking around on Facebook at, at some of the stuff of the foster adoptive communities, and there's one particular group that it kept popping up, and I looked at it, and it's, it's called um, something, it's got James 127 in the name of the group, and I thought, what does that even, what, what is that? I don't know. And I know that one of the things I noticed is taking care of, you know, the, the orphans and widows is one of those charges that is given to the early church many, many, many times. And it seems like a large portion of the church has kind of forgotten that and doesn't pay attention to it. And when I read that first, and it says something to the effect of um, true religion is is to visit the widows and orphans in their, in their trouble, in their hard place. And I go, actually, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. That, that, Mm. that's, you know, that, that whole concept of adoption, isn't that like the whole theme of the gospels? It's not all the thou shalt nots, you know, don't do this or you're going to burn in hell for all eternity. Uh, That's, that's not what the story was about. And for Mm. me, it was, it was all of a sudden opened up when I started seeing things in a different light other than what I had seen them because my overly churched period of time was as a young kid. Mm. And I spent that with my perception came from the, the point of view of a young kid who didn't understand mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff. And so we don't, we don't get into a lot of religious type stuff usually on the podcast, just because it's not a place where we're terribly comfortable jumping in deep. But I, I find that faith communities can oftentimes be the place that's the impetus for change for people. And I'm glad that, did you have that from, from the beginning? Was that something you're in your family of origin or your foster family? Or was that something that you found out after you, you aged out of the system? Great question. So early on, I, I had the connection to church only because we would go to church for food. So churches gave a lot of food, they had food banks. Um, and a lot of times they forced you to sit through long services in order to get the food. So my relationship with churches wasn't the best. Um, I'll say initially emancipating out of foster care, and even in foster care, my relationship wasn't the best with um, with the church community um, at the time because of the way I dress. Um, I, modesty was not near my mind. Um, I wanted to be a video girl, so I did not dress the part to walk into church for a lot of people. It was hard for them to accept. Um, and then on top of that, uh, my personality of uh, just being like, when I thought something, I would say it. So I wasn't the quietest, fold my hand, sitting in the church pews. I was more like, no, I think, even if I didn't know, I thought that I knew. I thought I knew everything. Um, So that was really hard for some people. And some people did not like me in church. Um, A good majority of them didn't. So my church journey, I do not want anyone to think it was just like easy and I just excelled. I was not that. I was seen as an outcast a lot of times. But what happened is, and I'd say this for for anything in life, what I've learned is to find the good people. So even if it's those people who can be critical, who can be judgmental, who can do all these things, it's to just find the good people who can be supportive um, and caring. And I found those people. Usually it might be out of the whole church, 200 people. It'd be three people who'd be like, Sherry, 
the Lord has a plan for you and we want to help you and support you. Um, so it, it happened around 19 years old where I found a good uh, community of uh, people in church. And it was only really probably like five people who were on my team who were like, sure, we're going to work with you and it's going to be okay. God has a plan for you. I don't know what you're wearing this. You said this. God has a plan for you. And that was amazing. I was like, Maybe he do. I don't know. <laughs> I was still trying to figure stuff out, struggling with homelessness. I don't know what was going on, but that was really important for people just to say, if they had nothing else that they could say to me and say, Hey guys, a plan for you. So I think, um, I know you guys don't talk about, um, much religion on the, on the podcast, just for people who may be religious listening is to be able to have that open heart. I think you're right about quoting the scripture in James and what Jesus calls us to do because he does call us to take care of the orphans and the widows. And I think sometimes, just sometimes people who are in church sometimes can uh, forget where they came from because we all are imperfect and sinful and nobody is beyond reproach. We have to remember that. Um, Another thing is that we forget who Jesus helped. Like the favorite stories in the Bible are the woman at the well who had many husbands. <laughs> he pointed her out and said it. Um, I love the adulterous woman who got drug out. And then Jesus was like, y'all need to back up. Do not, no, 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 no. Who in here has back, back up off her? He was there literally, but that's what he was saying. He was like, who has the first, <laughs> that was the first without saying throw the first stone. Um, it's, it's all these people who were, who were seen as imperfect, who did not have their lives together, who he helped and who he talked to and who he showed so much grace. He didn't put nobody on French street. Um, he just loved them. And I think love is a big component. Love, like just loving people, not judging what they wear, not judging what they're saying, not judging if they arrive late <laughs> or if they arrive at all, just loving people for where they are. So it took me a few years to navigate church, <laughs> but <laughs> now um, I'm 30 and I found a good place and I still have to find that community because everybody doesn't accept me in church. People don't like my personality. They're like, girl, you're too loud. You talk too long. What's your background? <laughs> but that's okay. You find a good community, even if it's one or two people who are on your team who can support you with the values and the morals and just the love that you're supposed to have because who else was supposed to have so I would just encourage that it took me a while and it was not always happy and roses absolutely not but you find those key good people um and yeah you're able to thrive and that's what happened to me always those key people who are like hey I just want to like help you to to find some balance and uh in your spirit and soul and that was really supportive I love that I love that because you know I, yeah and I, I know that I mentioned we don't talk about it a whole lot on here but it's mostly because we, we don't have the authority to, to talk on that a whole lot in, in this particular place, but we're not afraid to at least touch on it because it's it's something. It's it's a large part. You know, we're all, at a bare minimum, we're all a spiritual being of some sort, even if we don't understand what it is. And grabbing a hold of a piece of understanding there, you never know what you learn from somebody else. So I appreciate you sharing that with us because it's, yeah, you're right. I, I'm well aware of, of that feeling of not being the person that everybody wants to love. I'm just going to mm. say I'm I'm the big brown guy who's 45 years old, rocking the mohawk at the moment because, well, why not? And you know, <laughs> great big black beard. People don't look at me and go, oh, he looks like the guy I need to go talk to. <laughs> I'm not that guy most of the time. So it's really easy for me to find myself in that same very same position. Because if I don't agree with what you're teaching or what you believe, and I'm not the guy to back down either. I, I'm going to have mm-hmm. a, a conversation. I'm going to ask hard questions. And, and maybe between you or me, one, we might come to a 
conclusion. We might agree. We might not agree at the end of this. And that makes me a little bit more difficult to uh, to just like at face value sometimes. So I, I understand what you're saying there for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Sherry, I really appreciate you coming in here and telling your story here today because, you know, some kids who come out of out of affluent homes in, in in parts of the country where they have everything they need to get through, some of those kids do end up in foster care and have their journey. But you came out of, you know, Watts, California. You came out of hard places, hard family situations. You, you went through hard foster placements. You came through homelessness. And then you, you had to fight your way through several colleges to become successful and become the mother that you are today, which by the way, congratulations on a beautiful little baby there. Cause I am certain, you know, yours is actually quieter than ours today. So I haven't heard anything on your end. You must have somebody, somebody keeping that one quiet. Oh yes. Yes, I do. My husband's watching her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell him we said thanks too, because it's so helpful sometimes to have somebody keep an eye on those little ones when you're doing that. But but yeah, now your story is it's an inspiring story because you came from a hard place and and you're not on, not only did you make it through and become successful, but you've also made it through and you're willing to share your story. And that is so very powerful because we end up in some of these hard places in life and it's such a shame when you have been through that pain, through those hard places, and you did not take the time to learn a lesson and then share it with everybody else. Yes, thank you so much for having me on today and to be able to share my story and for all the amazing love um, in the home that you and your wife have. This is amazing. I'm I'm so grateful and inspired and encouraged by you both. It's it's amazing. We need more people like you and your family um, to be able to give and love the foster community. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I how can people find you if they're looking to get a hold of you? Oh, great question. So they can find me on my Instagram, uh, Twitter. In addition to, I have a blog um, and a website. <laughs> so if they want to find me, it's at her odd self. And I can definitely send over my link. Good deal. We'll make sure those are in the show notes. And you have a podcast by the same name, correct? Yes. Yes, I do. Her odd self inspiration podcast. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I want to thank you again just for taking the time to come in here today and and have this conversation with us and spend part of your afternoon giving giving us some some knowledge and some experience that we can share with the rest of the world and maybe, just maybe, inspire some people to go out and, and help kids who need help. Well, and inspire some kids too so that they know you can do this. You don't have to be a statistic just because the odds are stacked against you, just because of all these things. You can do what you want to do in life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The statistics does not define any of us. And you definitely can and will overcome them. Yeah. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Sherry's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player. 
or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys so cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios. Studios.